Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. But as we turn today to the Sermon on the Mount, you will see the title of, of today's sermon is The Greatest Sermon by the Greater Moses. So many things in life today can be explained, I think, by a struggle for greatness. Every sports competition is an effort to demonstrate that you are greater than your opponent. At the end of every season, every sports season, they'll have a tournament of some sorts to to determine which team or which individual is the greatest for that year. And recently, there's been a lot of conversation, as it pertains to sports, about uh, who is the GOAT. That's a new term that's been added. It stands for the greatest of all time, right? the GOAT. Who's the greatest at their respective sport to ever do it? And you'll have a lot of people arguing in basketball about whether it's Michael Jordan or LeBron James. You know, you'll have people talking about this in football, and as much as it really and truly pains me to admit this, and as much as I know it pains Bob there, you have to concede that Tom Brady is the GOAT to ever play at quarterback, right? In gymnastics, at the last Olympics, Simone Biles competed with a GOAT literally bedazzled on her leotard. Now, that's not a sentence that I ever thought I would say, but... Nonetheless, here we are because this is the debate. And this extends to areas beyond just sports. Politicians are always attempting to explain why they are greater than their opponent. Companies are always trying to explain why they are greater than their competitors. And they'll enlist the help of cute little geckos and ducks to try to convince you that they're greater, even though that has nothing to do with insurance. But this is always a debate in our society in high school. Students vie for the top spot to be the valedictorian in their class. In my graduating class, it was between me and another student, a young lady. We were tied in every measurable category. We'd taken the same classes. We'd gotten the same grades. Our end-of-the-year test had had, had yielded similar results. And so our school decided to break the tie by going to our ACT scores, where she beat me out by a point or two. Not that I'm still bothered or bitter by that at all. (laughs) But in all of these debates, what separates the greatest or even the greatest of all time from the rest of the field is usually measured in small degrees. LeBron James and Michael Jordan are both great athletes. They both won multiple championships. They both scored an unfathomable amount of points. Perhaps the most unquestioned goat, Tom Brady, has won a ton of Super Bowls, but it's still only a few more than some other really, truly great quarterbacks. And the great debate about the valedictorian of the Russell County High School class of 2003 came down to a few multiple choice questions, right? So, yeah. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, we are introduced to someone here who is greater, not just by a matter of degrees, We are introduced to the true greatest of all time through the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew is careful to show Jesus in these terms, to show him in this light. 
He is greater than anyone who has ever come before, particularly as we will see today, Moses. And he's not just a little bit greater. He's not just greater by a win or two, or a championship or two. He's not greater in the way that Tom Brady is greater than Joe Montana. But the way that the sun is greater than a birthday candle. The way that the ocean is greater than a mud puddle. And the way that Mount Everest is greater than an anthill. He is greater in a degree of magnitude and enormity that we cannot even fathom. And so this morning I want to show you how Matthew begins demonstrating this to us as we start to look at the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you Jesus for who he is, the greatest. And so if you are able this morning, I would ask you to please stand with me. We're going to read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5 and the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7. There Matthew writes, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And if you flip over to chapter 7 of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount ends, it says in verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we are so grateful for the redemption that you have accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. And as we open your word to see what it is that he taught and how he taught it, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to understand it so that we can receive it, so that we can see Jesus for who he is. We can see him as the greatest that ever was, the one who is worthy of all our praise, the one who is worthy of all our devotion because he is the nearer king, the better priest, and the higher authority. Lord, help us to see these things from your word today. And as we see Jesus, I pray, Lord, that 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 would have an effect as we leave this room, that we would be transformed By seeing and hearing who he is and what he says. So that we might be effective disciples in a world that is lost and dying without him. Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet seen Jesus, who has not yet had their eyes opened to who he is. I pray, Lord, that you would open those eyes today. And that you would draw them to yourself in repentance and faith. So that they might know the wonderful reality of having a relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we read these first and last verses in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand that Matthew's goal is not simply to narrate events as they occurred. Rather, he is setting the stage by introducing you to the main character through themes and images that his readers would have already been familiar with. We're told at the end of Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus had been drawing large crowds as he went throughout Galilee and throughout all the 
the region preaching and teaching. And so it's very likely that Jesus had already said very similar things to this in other places, to other people. But on this particular day, Matthew chooses to record for us in great detail the circumstances of the sermon that Jesus preached. And he does so, I believe, to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses. Much of what Jesus will cover in this sermon is a reiteration of the Old Testament law. In fact, Jesus says explicitly in this sermon that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he's giving his disciples here a vision of what a fulfilled law, what a kept law actually should look like, what the the spirit of the law is. Because as he goes through this and as he brings up these points from the Old Testament law, he shows us that at the heart of the law, it's really a matter of the heart. Not your outward actions, but who you are and the deepest recesses of your being. The problem for us, though, is that our hearts, in order to conform to what Jesus says here, our hearts have to be transformed. We can never get there on our own. The Old Testament law given by Moses could never do that by itself. And so that's why we'll see, as we begin to get into the Beatitudes, that that it requires a heart transformation. We'll start that next week. But today, I just simply want to show you that Jesus is greater. Matthew tells us that when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes on to the mountain and his disciples come to him. They're on the mountain and and as they come to him, he sits down and begins to teach them. This demonstrates that Jesus is the nearer king. Jesus is the nearer king. Way back in the Old Testament, when we go to Exodus, we find that after escaping from Egypt, after escaping from bondage, And slavery, Moses and the multitudes of the Jews that were following him, they come to a different mountain. They come to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, we're told what the experience on that mountain was like. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, it says, For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying... Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Later, after God thundered from Sinai, after He spoke the Ten Commandments to the people in the hearing of all the people, listen to what the response of the people was in Exodus chapter 20. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet... And the mountains smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Notice how different the scene is here in Matthew chapter 5. Here we come to another mountain where God has once again come to meet with His people. Only this time there are no threats of death. There are no ropes around this mountain telling the people that you can't touch it. As a matter of fact, Jesus invites the crowds to come to Him on the mountain. 
There's a gracious invitation. There's no thunder and lightning and trumpets and smoke. I imagine this day was probably much like other days in the region there of Galilee. Now, hear me clear, clearly here as we build this contrast. I'm in no way saying or indicating that the God who was at Sinai is in any way different than the God who is on this mountain. God has not changed. The same God that thundered from Sinai and threatened death to anyone who touched the mountain is the same God who is now sitting with the crowds on this mountain. The difference is that God is now making a way for His people to be reconciled, to be purified, for their hearts to be changed. The people couldn't touch Mount Sinai because for them to be in the presence of God would mean death because their sins had not been atoned for. Because they had not been reconciled to Him. But here, Jesus is making a way for His people to be reconciled to Him. He is the way to be reconciled to God. And so He is drawn near to the people. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus has come to be with His people. To draw near to them. The Sermon on the Mount demonstrates this in vivid clarity. On Mount Sinai. You might remember that Moses, he wanted to see God's glory. He begged God to show him his glory. But God told him, he said, Moses, if you were to see my glory, what would happen? He would die. He would die. He couldn't stand in the presence of God. He couldn't behold God's glory and live. And so God had to hide Moses in a rock and pass by him so that Moses could just get a a glimpse Of the tail end of God's glory. But even with that glimpse, even with that small, minuscule revelation of God's glory, do you remember what happened to Moses? When he came down off of the mountain, because of that glimpse of God's glory, Moses' face literally radiated with the glory of God. His face shone from being exposed to that small amount of God's glory. So much so that that when the people saw him, they were afraid. They were made uncomfortable by Moses because he was exuding the glory of God. And so Moses had to put a veil on to cover his face. Because the people were so troubled by him. But it was not Moses' own glory that shone from his face. No more than the red on my head and shoulders are actual rays of sunbeams. Right? They are sunburned because I've been in the presence of the sun. Moses, you might say, was God burned. He, he, was, he was reflecting the glory of God from his face because he had seen the glory of God. He'd been in the presence of the glory of God. It was just a reflection of that glory. It was a borrowed glory. It was not his own. But on this mountain in Matthew chapter 5, We're told that the glory of God was on full display, robed in the flesh of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. People didn't have to be shielded from it on this mountain because Jesus was their shield. Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. Jesus is the nearer king. 
He goes up onto the mountain, but instead of preventing the crowds from drawing near, he invites them into his presence. And then he begins to teach them how they can not only draw near to him, but how they can be made righteous by him. How their hearts can be transformed by him. And so my aim as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount is that you would see Jesus and that you would begin to reflect his glory. Just like Moses' face shone with the glory of God when he encountered God on that mountain. So too we should visibly exude the radiance of God's glory when we encounter God and Jesus through his word. It should make people uncomfortable to be around you because you reek of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the vehicle through which we will encounter this glory, this glory robed in flesh of Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to see him, to behold him, and to commit right now as we begin to work our way through these instructions to obey him. Listen, he calls us to a high standard. And it's not one that we can just go out and do on our own. We can't keep this law. We can't keep these regulations on our own. Our hearts have to be transformed by him first. And then he enables us to live it. But if we do that, If we do that together as a body of believers, then look out. The world will not be able to stand you because your obedience to Christ will be so radical, so uncommon, so full of love and grace and truth that the world won't know what to do with you. All because Jesus has drawn near to us as the nearer king. Jesus is not only the nearer king, though, he is also the better priest. He's the better priest. Moses acted as a priest on behalf of the people. He interceded for the people on numerous occasions. There were times when God's wrath threatened to completely destroy his people, to wipe them out there in the wilderness. He said, I'll scatter their bodies. But in those moments, Moses stepped up and he asked God to forgive his wayward people. At one point, Moses even offered his own life in exchange for the people, telling God that if he would not forgive his people, that God should blot Moses out of his book forever. Now, ultimately, God did not require Moses' life in exchange for his people because, frankly, Moses' sacrifice wouldn't have accomplished anything. Moses himself died outside the promised land for his own rebellion. His life was required of him for his own sin. How could he even possibly hope to pay for anyone else's sin? You see, Moses could tell the people what God expected from them. But he didn't possess the power to actually help them do it on their own. But when Jesus here delivers the Sermon on the Mount... He does so as a priest who would give his own life to provide the heart transformation necessary to live up to these requirements. Jesus isn't giving here just additional details on the law. He's not simply saying that that they've mistaken the law along the way and if you just keep it this way, you'll be good. No. He's telling us that we need a heart transformation. Yet even today, people are still trying to follow Moses instead of Jesus. People want rules. 
And so they'll say things like, well, if you were really a Christian, you would do this or you would do that. You wouldn't say those words. You would dress this way. You would vote this way or whatever it is. But if salvation came from keeping the rules, then the scribes here, the Pharisees, they would have had it down. But our better priest shows us that salvation cannot come from keeping rules. He doesn't tell us which rules we need to keep, but how to have our hearts transformed by His grace. He's showing the people what a life transformed by grace actually looks like. How a life that's been transformed by grace prays in the Sermon on the Mount. How a life that's transformed by grace gives. How a life that's transformed by grace fasts. How a life transformed by grace loves their enemies and and handles anger and lust. And then Jesus is going to provide the very grace that we need to live that way. He says, here's what you can do once your heart's been changed. Once you've been saved by grace. And then He goes and does it for us. He is a better priest because He is able to do what Moses never could. And this is exactly what God told Moses that the people would need. Back in Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. Again, echoes of what we read before. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So when Jesus goes up on this mountain and he sits down and he opens his mouth and begins teaching them, saying, when he does that, he is fulfilling this prophecy. He is delivering the words of the Father to the people. He is the Word made flesh. He is a prophet like Moses. But he's better than Moses. Because he is able to accomplish what Moses and the law never could. He's able to actually change people's hearts. To make them new creations. To redeem them by the blood of the Lamb. He is the nearer king and he is a better priest. But he's also a higher authority. In the final words of Matthew chapter 7. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We're told how it was that the people responded to Jesus. Matthew tells us they were astonished. Astonished. Now, the Greek word here that Matthew uses for astonished refers to being struck out of oneself. Struck out of oneself. How do we explain that? Well, some of you may remember the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? Where where Daffy Duck or Elmer Fudd gets hit so hard that their soul leaves their body. And their body's just kind of suspended there for a moment. It's kind of the idea here. This is a good image for what the people were experiencing. The sermon hit them like a ton of bricks. 
or in those instances like an acne bomb. And it's not just because of what Jesus said, but because of how He said it. We're told that He delivered this sermon as one who had authority. These people were struck dumb. They were awestruck, struck outside of themselves because Jesus comes as one who has authority. They'd never heard anything like this. They'd never heard anything like this. The contrast here is made to the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, who when they spoke, they spoke with a borrowed authority. They would regularly quote other people, other thinkers, other rabbis. Their ideas weren't typically their own. They were borrowed ideas. It was a borrowed authority. But when Jesus spoke, something was different. He was delivering a message from heaven. He was revealing the culmination of the Old Testament law. He was explaining how things should have worked. How they could work if people would only pursue the righteousness that comes by faith. In Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, this distinction in authority is explained to us. How Jesus is, is greater in authority than Moses. There the author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here the author of Hebrews tells us Moses was a faithful servant. We're not taking anything away from Moses here, but, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses in the way that the sun is greater than a birthday candle. Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus, Jesus is the Son. And He alone is working to accomplish what God said through His Word all that time ago. Jesus is working to accomplish and fulfill all the things that Moses spoke about. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that He was there to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. It's talking about Matthew chapter 5 in part. When Jesus goes up on that mountain to teach the people and He reveals God's Word to them and He tells them, this is what it looks like when your heart has been transformed by My grace. This is what your attitudes are going to look like. This is how you're going to pray. This is how you're going to, to love your enemies. In the last verse it says, and we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus Christ alone is our confidence. He is our boasting. He is our hope. We don't boast in anything that we're able to do. We don't boast in any law that we are able to keep. Listen, 
We don't boast in the fact that we dress modestly or that we say the right words or that we do the right things or that we avoid the things that we shouldn't. If you are boasting in those things, if that's where your hope and your confidence is, listen, those things will lead you to hell. Those things are not our hope and our confidence any more than keeping the law was going to save the people of Israel as their hope and confidence. Our hope, our confidence, our only salvation is in what Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary's cross when He went there and bore the wrath of God the Father that we deserved. When He went there and He took the punishment for the abortions those women had that would trust in Him. When He took the punishment for the pornography that you've looked at. When He took the punishment for the adultery that you committed against your spouse. When He took the punishment for the lies that you told. Whatever it is that you fill in the blank with. That's your hope. That's your confidence. That's what you must hold fast to. That is your boasting. Not that you've done anything to be the greatest. But that Jesus... Jesus is the greatest. And He is our hope. He is our confidence. Moses was a faithful servant, but he was not the Son. His authority was a borrowed authority. Just like the glory that shone from His face was a borrowed glory. Christ's authority, however, was based on who He was. The very Son of God. Abraham Kuyper is famous for his quote, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Indeed, the Bible tells us that everything that was made was made by and through and for Jesus Christ. The mountain on which He sat to deliver this sermon was His. Mount Sinai, where God thundered from heaven, was His. Every ear that reverberated with these words in Galilee that day was His. Like manna that fell in the wilderness were the words from heaven, from His lips, giving life to all those that would hear. So when He tells His people, when He tells these people how they are to live, He has every right to do so because He is the higher authority. And they have every obligation to obey Him. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you know that you are obligated to obey Him too. We are all obligated to obey Christ, our higher authority. This is not optional. right? Sometimes when you're driving down the road, you see people who are optionally obeying the authorities. Some of you all probably optionally obeyed the speed limit on your way here. Right? Some people sometimes will optionally obey stop signs, especially in Georgia. Listen, I don't know what's up with you all, but Georgia drivers, man, I was reminded this week of of how bad that can be. But they treat all road laws as optional authorities. But Jesus, Jesus is not an optional authority. God told Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that whoever does not obey his word, he will require it of him. He will require it of us. Christ has drawn near to His people, a gentle and humble King. He has offered His own life, an atonement for our sins, a better priest. And He has spoken with all the power, honor, and authority that the High King of Heaven, the Creator of all things, is due.
Again, God tells Moses that if we do not listen to his words, he will require it of us. Yet some of you, even today, remain in rebellion against him. You refuse to listen. In the verses that immediately follow what we read in verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 3, uh, I want to read to you what comes next. Immediately after those verses where it, it, it tells us how Jesus is the higher authority, the higher authority as a son, as the builder of the house. And we are that house. Immediately after that it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. You see, the people in the wilderness, they heard the voice of God thundering from Sinai. And yet they rebelled. They said, Moses, if you'll speak to God and then tell us what He says, we will do it. But they didn't. They hardened their hearts on that day of testing. And their bodies fell in the wilderness. God required it of them. How much more will God require it of us if we do not listen to His Son? If we do not submit in humble, life-altering obedience to Jesus Christ? Jesus is the greater Moses, the higher authority. And so you have this obligation. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to see Him. I want you to see Jesus for who He is in His own words. I want you to behold His glory and then reflect that glory in the way that you live your life so that the world is disgusted by you because you reek of God. But first, before anything else, we must listen to Him. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The Holy Spirit of God, we're told, commands this of you. The Holy Spirit of God commands this of you. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what the people did in the wilderness. That's why they died, because of their rebellion. They would not listen to Moses, and something greater than Moses has come. Christ has called you before anything else to repent of your sins and believe in His life-changing, redeeming work that He accomplished on the cross. If the Holy Spirit of God is calling you today to do that, then anything other than full surrender, full repentance, is disobedience and rebellion. And so I challenge you today, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe. If you would like to know how you can do that, then I would be more than happy to talk to you. You can come down here in a minute and let me know that you'd like to talk. We'll be having lunch down in the gym. I'll be here all afternoon. And I'd love to spend that time talking with you about how you can avoid this warning here in Hebrews chapter 3. How you can do the opposite of hardening your heart. How you can listen to the voice of God calling you to faith and repentance. It all starts there. And then once you receive that transform, that new heart, that new life, then as we work through the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks, we will see what that life is supposed to look like. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank You. We thank You that You have sent Jesus Christ to us because, Lord, we could not keep that law. What You thundered from Sinai could only condemn. It could only bring death. 
But what was spoken on this mountain by the one who was sent to demonstrate your glory. What you declared here brings life. And so, Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room would see Jesus for who he is. See him in all his majesty, all his glory, all his splendor as the greater Moses. The one who didn't just abolish and erase what Moses said, but fulfilled it. Who kept it for us on our behalf so that we could be transformed by his life-giving grace. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who has not yet experienced that grace, that, that you would speak to them today. That you would draw them to yourself. We know that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw them in a way that they are unable to resist. That they would not harden their hearts. Though the enemy is trying even now to do just that. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your grace. Make them new creations. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.